Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Today, I'd like to welcome Professor Christine Doan. Um, she's a professor at Durham University, and um, I was hoping today that she would be able to tell us a bit about her research. Okay, thank you. Uh, so I work on black holes, and uh, which is fabulous. What's not to love? We've all watched the science fiction movies where they get linked to time travel, uh, travel through space with wormholes, alternate universes, all the really cool stuff. Well, I don't really do that. What I do is look at uh, material falling into black holes. When material falls under such strong gravity, you get enormous amounts of energy out. And uh, this matter glows not just red hot or even white hot, but it glows x-ray hot. And so you can look at these uh, accretion disks around black holes if you look in x-rays. But x-rays don't get through our atmosphere, so to do that you have to go above the atmosphere, which means you get to play with rockets. I'm a rocket scientist. And that's a great way to describe yourself at parties. <laughs> okay, so... Um, I, I read a bit about um, your PhD. Um, was that like directly related to the research you're doing now? Or? Yes, in many ways um, that's uh, a common thread in my research is I've, uh, ever since my PhD, I've been looking at material falling onto black holes, looking at how that enormous gravitational potential energy gets converted to the X-ray radiation that we see. Okay. So how would you say what you're doing now is sort of building from what you've done previously? So uh, when I started in research, doing my PhD, I was looking at that X-ray radiation and uh, it's incredibly intense. You get really very uh, high luminosities in X-rays if you have lots of material falling towards the event horizon of a black hole. And then you can get uh, photon-photon collisions and you can um, produce an electron-positron pair. It's Einstein's most famous equation, E equals mc squared. Energy and matter are kind of equivalent. And so if you have photons of high enough energy and you smack them together, you can make matter-antimatter, you can make an electron-positron pair. And so my, my PhD thesis was looking at how that process changed the X-ray emission that we actually saw with high energy, the highest energy X-rays being absorbed in these photon-photon collisions and making us uh, more electron-positron pairs. Okay, um, so I guess that's kind of how you is that how was that how you started in this kind of black hole. X-ray kind of field? Very much so. So it started off very theoretical. I, I built a code that could stop most computers at the mm. time, which uh, has always got a lot of fun. Um, I stopped NASA's Cray at one point. That, that really felt like an achievement. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I also got more and more interested in how we could use observational data to test these models. And so I started... Uh, talking to the people who understood X-ray data. And, uh, and, and that was very exciting. And in many ways, that's what I do in my research now. I take, I take the best available theoretical models and I take the best available observational data and I make them talk to each other. <laughs> I make them go into the same paper. And, 
Normally they miss by miles, but that's okay <laughs> because that just shows us the things that are missing from our current best understanding. That's interesting. So you're like linking together theoretical and experimental physics. Yeah, very much okay. so. Would you say you have like a preference for theoretical or experimental kind of sides of things? Yes, I'm, I'm very clearly uh, a big picture person. I want to understand the, the big picture. What is the structure of this secretion flow? What are the main physical processes that we need to understand? Uh, what's what's the physics that's going on. Often there's a, a huge load of work that goes on behind that, making computational models, making theoretical models. But I, I want to get a big picture of what happens as the material falls in towards the black hole. So is that more towards the theoretical side then? Yes, but... but, <laughs> <Where is it? laughs> but you can make any theoretical model you want. I want it to be a good representation of reality. I want it to actually match up with what we see. Uh, I guess that's the idea, right? Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, I guess I'm quite curious, how did you um, choose like black holes and that sort of thing for your PhD topic? What's not to love? <laughs> choose black holes. Uh, I think... Uh, I'd been fascinated by, um, by some of the storylines in the science fiction. Uh, I grew up where Star Trek was the most exciting thing on TV, and uh, just the ideas that they play with in terms of you know, time travel, space travel. And, and I especially liked the character of Spock, the science officer, who's the half-human, half-Vulcan. And he... He's the one who understands what's going on. Generally, actually, it's, it's him who rescues everybody from whatever trouble they're in because he thinks it through and starts to understand what's going on and can think of a way out of it. So, yeah, I, I wanted to be Spock. That's <laughs> 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 not a common answer. <laughs> Sadly, unachievable. I never grew the ears. Aww. Uh, you can always hope. <laughs> okay. Well, you, you mentioned earlier that you work at NASA, um, and I think I've read that you work as part of like an NRC fellowship. Yes. Could you um, talk about a bit on um, like what that actually is and how you got the position? So, um, academia is uh, a, a somewhat tricky career path to follow. Um, in general, after your PhD, there's... Uh, sometimes spent on short-term contracts and that's an opportunity but it can also be uh, tricky because often you don't know what country you're going to be in in two years time or even what continent you're going to be on in two years time which yeah it's both exciting and sometimes difficult um, but after my PhD I'd uh, applied for fellowships because they give uh, fellowships the money goes to you and so you get to choose the projects you work on whereas if you work with uh, with a group they get to choose the projects right, you work okay. on so um, I applied for fellowships and I'd also applied for, for various jobs with groups but this particular fellowship came off and so I worked for two years in the United States in uh, Goddard Space Flight Center, which is just outside Washington, D.C. And, uh, and that was just uh, a really exciting time to, 
go and live and work in another country is very different from visiting another country. You've got to figure out how to how to get an apartment, how to, how to do all the kind of normal things of life, but in a different country where you don't know what what is the what what are the chemist shops called, and <laughs> you just don't know anything. Yeah, like um, moving into Durham, like for getting into the routines and things is very weird. Like you don't you don't do that when you're just visiting somewhere. That's right. You have to actually set up a life, yeah. and uh, uh, and in another country that that comes with lots more kind of surprises. Okay, I'm I'm quite curious. Would you say like the way science was handled was different in any way in America compared to the UK? Like, um, any cultural differences or anything like that? There were, there were some cultural differences because I was working for NASA. Um, so I was working in a, in a science group. Uh, and so that had a very similar feel to the group I worked in for my PhD. But because it was also part of a much wider institution, and that institution involved engineering and um, flying satellites and buildings where you weren't really meant to go, especially as a foreigner. And, uh, and so it was, a, yeah, it was a, a very different sort of dynamic because it was part of, of a big institution of NASA um, as well as being a science group. I see. Okay. Um, could you talk a bit about like, what things you did in your placement at NASA? So that was uh, very much a kind of continuation of the work I'd done with my PhD. Again, I was looking at, at uh, the structure of material falling into a black hole. Um, but the group that I was part of, um, they were also involved in flying an X-ray telescope in the payload bay of the space shuttle. And, and they needed extra hands. <laughs> so... And so an unexpected part of being a kind of a theoretician was I ended up in the uh, control room of the space shuttle at Goddard Space Flight Center wearing the snazzy headset and controlling the telescope on the payload bay of the, of the space shuttle. So were you actually like directly using the controls? Uh, no, I was I was the planner, so I'd be planning the timeline, okay. what they would look at when they'd uh, you'd have to schedule in the slew times and the um, sun avoidance and all sorts of fun stuff. It's very cool. Um, the closest thing I've got to anything like that is like crashing a remote control helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> So sadly, I didn't, I didn't get to, to play with the controls. However, having said that, the shuttle astronauts did. Ooh. So uh, on the way, uh, on the way um, towards the end of the mission, we were stowing all the telescopes, uh, and there was a bit of a problem with the pointing on our X-ray telescope, but everything else had stowed. So uh, the shuttle crew said, OK, we've still got some time. Do you want us to point? And we said, yeah, so we, we got them to, uh, we got a nice big target, a supernova remnant, where there's X-ray hot glowing gas over quite a large, um, uh, a large angle for, and uh, they piloted the shuttle with uh, uh, trying to keep it always in the field of view. And we did a random walk over the supernova remnant and got good, good data until the very last moment where we had to close everything down. 
Um, and they really enjoyed that. It's like, hey, we can show where Hotshot Pilot is. <laughs> <laughs> and we got extra hours worth of data. Uh, that does sound quite exciting. <laughs> okay, so after your placement in NASA, that's when you um, came to Durham, is that correct? No, I, no. I went via another two years, so I had another fellowship, this time from the UK. Oh, and okay. I worked at Leicester in their space science group. Uh, and again, they have a, uh, a group that does both um, models and a lot of observational data. They've built several um, X-ray detectors for satellites. And so I was working with that group and um, using X-ray data from some of the instruments that they had developed. Okay, was that um, building on your, again your previous work, or were you doing yes, kind of new Yes, in many ways. So I think in um, as part of my thesis, one of the um, one of the uh, projects I did was looking at X-ray emission from a supermassive black hole. So we had um, X-ray data from one of these space satellites, uh, but we also had uh, optical data simultaneously with that satellite uh, from one of the telescopes on the Canary Islands in La Palma. It's such hardship being an astronomer. You have to go to all these. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so I, I was at the telescope in La Palma, and I did get to drive that one. Ooh. That was a lot of fun. Uh, and we got simultaneous data, which was some of the first X-ray optical simultaneous data uh, from an AGM that anyone had ever got. And that was um, uh, an instrument that had been built by the Lester Group uh, in collaboration with Japanese. And so I started this collaboration with the Japanese Space Agency. Uh, and when I was uh, working for NASA, I got to go to Japan. It's such a hard life. I had <laughs> to go to Japan. Oh, if you have and, to, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and started working with the group in Japan uh, and continued that collaboration as well. So in fact, five years ago, I had a sabbatical year and went to live for a year in Tokyo. Such hardship, you have no idea. <laughs> okay. So um, I wanted to actually um, talk about your year in Tokyo a bit later on, but for now I wanted to mention um, if you had any like, particular reason for coming to Durham? Or... Oh, uh, yes, in many ways. Uh, so I got another fellowship, <laughs> which, was, uh, which was then a longer term fellowship, a five year fellowship. And uh, the plan had been that I would stay in, in Leicester in their space science group. But my husband's also an academic uh, and uh, he just got a position in Durham. And because a fellowship goes to the person rather than to the group, I could move my fellowship and come up to Durham and uh, be part of the group here. Okay, I see. Uh, it must be quite hard, like, managing, like, a personal life, trying, like, when you have it, when it seems like you have to be moving. Yeah, and two, like that two career often. couples, it, it was uh, very difficult. We were... We were nine and a half years on short-term contracts and, and at various points we got out of sync and so it was every year one or other of us was doing the job round and is it this time, is it this time that uh, one of us has to give up the academic career that they, we both really wanted. But it turned out okay in the end, <laughs> grace of God. <laughs> I mean, 
<laughs> but it was it was very difficult. Let's see. So um, about your year in Tokyo, I was hoping you could expand on that. Oh, that was amazing. Uh, so um, so I've, I've continued working with every major space agency on the planet, apart from the Russians, and that's looking more and more like a really smart move. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but uh, uh, doing this combination of the best possible uh, models and the best possible data. And so it became, uh, uh, I, I had this long-standing collaboration with, with the Japanese. They have this really innovative space program where they fly really novel instruments, um, but in quite small uh, payloads. And every sort of five, five, six, seven years, there'll be a new Japanese X-ray satellite doing um, with new discovery space and uh, and so I'd been involved in one of the previous Japanese missions and had gone for three months to Japan uh, and worked on on that data and so it was it was just uh, a great opportunity to to be part of a live mission especially close to the launch when the new data are coming down and they show us um, new aspects of what the accretion flow is doing. And so because of this long-standing collaboration, uh, I was on the science team for this uh, new mission, which was called Hitomi. And uh, it had the best spectral resolution ever. It, it had such discovery space. Uh, spatial resolution shows you beautiful images but spectral resolution gets you dynamics because you can see from the Doppler shifts how the material is moving. So uh, it had this spectral resolution. It was going to show us the dynamics of the uh, material around black holes. And uh, the, day, the day we left to emigrate to Japan for a year, there was a, a problem with the satellite and it basically fell out of the sky. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm, I'm sitting on the plane, emigrating, thinking, uh, la -li la -li la -li la did my satellite just fall out the sky? <laughs> oh, no. and, uh, basically, yes. Um, but because I'm half a theoretician, um, actually, with, with their incredible new data, anyone could have written fabulous papers with, with the new data that that satellite would have given us. Um, but I'm also a theoretician, so uh, I had ideas for projects that we could do on existing data uh, that, that meant that uh, my time there was um, very fruitful, actually, because I had lots of graduate students whose, whose thesis was basically, and there will be awesome new data from this awesome new satellite, and now they're going, hmm... I wonder if Chris has got any ideas. What can you work on? <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> oh, that must have been quite intense. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, just living in Japan for for a year and just setting up a flat in Japan. We we set up a flat in Japan and we really lived there. We weren't in the kind of university housing. We were in in 
uh, standard town close to the train station so we could uh, my husband was also working at a university there and so we could both commute to our respective places and uh, we lived in Japan and more than survive <laughs> even though my Japanese is rubbish so <laughs> uh, um, oh, my mind's gone blank oh, it's okay I can edit if I pause out um yeah, so I know I sort of asked you this before, but I'm really curious if like, there were any sort of cultural differences while you were in Japan. Oh, like, many. Like, like, many. What, like both with, in terms of like the science and then also yeah. like just day-to-day kind of things. Um, very many, <laughs> but uh, it's actually a, a culture I feel very comfortable with, even though I can't speak Japanese um, but I, um, so some of the ways you do science are a little bit different in that it's much more about building consensus. Um, having worked in the States and worked in Japan, uh, they are they are opposite ends of the spectrum. Oh, yeah. So in in the States, it's very um, uh, individualistic. Uh, whereas in Japan it's very much more communal Um, and and actually being in those two very different cultures made me realise actually I'm really European (laughs) (laughs) because at some point you have to balance um, individual and society And, and in the States it's very much individual and in Japan is very much society, um, and I think Europe actually has has a really good balance of <laughs> individual and society because both are important. Um, but I would think that because I'm European. <laughs> but it did actually take living in such very different cultures to make it very clear to me that okay, um, in Europe we have many different languages on in a very kind of small size scale, but I have more in common culturally with someone who speaks a very different language than me in, um, uh, than I have uh, with, say, in the States, where they speak the same language, but the culture is actually surprisingly different. Yeah, it's kind of like, uh, you know, you can try a bunch of different new foods when you go to uni, but nothing beats mum's home cooking. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, the food in Japan. Oh, the food in Japan. <laughs> the food in Japan probably beats... <laughs> It's really <laughs> fantastic. I'm just, I'm just walking around Tokyo. It's, it's a really um, um, dynamic city. There's places where there's just kind of blazing lights and sound and um, huge mega screens and people everywhere. Uh, I'm, I grew up in a, a fairly scruffy seaside town that's kind of back end of beyond and I get to go um, walk around Tokyo, this glitzy mega city um, and and that was just just amazing. Yeah, I really like to be able to live in a kind of big city like that, at least at least for a while. I think it'd be really really eye-opening experience, I yeah. guess. Yeah. D- definitely different from Durham. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did my first degree in St Andrews, so there is smaller than Durham, there is further north, and there is colder. <laughs> <laughs> the big three. Yes. <laughs> yes, off 
often my, my uh, first few, few cheese come come November and December will be going, ooh, is it always this cold here? And I'm going, wait till you find February. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I guess now could you um, talk about what you're doing currently, like research-wise? Are you still going on the accretion disks? I'm still trying to understand how the material falling towards the black hole, the, what's the nature and geometry of that accretion flow, uh, what are the physical processes that are important, uh, how, how does that determine the, the wider emission that we see from these objects. Like in supermassive black holes, we find these supermassive black holes and quasars from, from this, uh, the activity generated by, by the accretion flow. There's very strong ultraviolet and X-ray radiation, that's ionizing radiation, and so it makes a lot of emission lines. And we have this characteristic feature of quasars called the broadline region that we see um, both in local active galaxies and in quasars out to the edge of the observable universe at Redshift 7. And they look just the same. There's clearly some physics going on here about how you form this um, broadline region, where the material comes from. It has a structure, and we don't really understand that structure because we don't really understand the physics of how this uh, these lines are formed. It's obviously not just kind of random bits of material falling in because then it wouldn't look the same from now to the edge of the observable universe. It's clearly got a well-defined geometrical structure, a well-defined dynamical structure. It's connected somehow to the accretion flow. My best guess is it's some form of wind coming off this bright accretion flow. Uh, we could do with knowing what form of wind and what the dynamics actually are, and then we'd actually understand what it is that we're using to identify quasars from here to the edge of the universe. Okay. Do you um do you have any like ideas on what you're gonna like data's gonna show in the upcoming future? Or well, next year they're gonna relaunch that satellite. Ooh, <laughs> exciting! <laughs> I know. Uh, would you be going back to Japan? Uh, so I'm going back to Japan. Ooh, okay. uh, so I'm going back uh, in, well, I'll go back in October this year uh, for a short visit of a few months, and then I'll go back October next year. You might have noticed I'm not going in the term that I'm teaching, so <laughs> I don't have to lose all my, all my nice teaching. Because um, I, I found the last time I went for an entire year that Obviously, I had to give up my teaching, and then you can't just get it back off the person who put all that work into doing the course. So, um, so yes, I'm not going to do that to my teaching. <laughs> I'm going to go in shorter chunks of time. Uh, but still, I'm very much looking forward to travelling again. Yeah, it does sound quite fun. Yeah. So, would you say about teaching something quite important to you then? I really enjoy seeing the light go on behind the eyes. <laughs> I, uh, I, like, um, I like being able to explain the physics. Um, often things can get very technical, and the technical bits are really important, but I want people to understand the big picture as well. Uh, I want people to understand 
it's not just maths that they're doing. It's something connected to the real world that we can start to understand. Okay. Do you have anything you want to mention? Oh, um, the highlight was uh, a couple of years ago, the BBC came and said, uh, do you want to be part of this new series we're doing on the universe? And I'm going, yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> they took me away in the middle of lockdown and we, we did some filming uh, in a Welsh quarry uh, and it was, it was such fun. It was really uh, very interesting trying to you know, work with a full film crew and uh, trying to um, explain the concepts that they wanted in, in the right level and in an engaging way. Uh, that, was, that was a lot of fun, so I really enjoyed that. But actually, when we lived in Japan, I, I had another inroads with the BBC. Actually, this was Radio 4. Uh, Radio 4 contacted me because um, I also do talks on science and faith. I'm a Christian. And they said, oh, would you do a Lent talk for us? And I said, yes, uh, I'd happily do that, but I live in Japan, so sorry. <laughs> and they go, no, 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 it's fine. We'll find you a recording studio in Japan. And so they give me this recording studio in Japan in the really snazzy nightlife district. And, and I have a live link to my producer in Manchester. <laughs> I was just like, this is amazing. We've got to remember, I'm, I'm a girl from this scruffy little seaside town. <laughs> I haven't <laughs> made anything special. My, m me and my sister, we were the first generation in our family to go to university. So we're, we're first generation scholars. And um, yeah, I, get, I get to sit in a in a recording studio in Rapongi in Tokyo in the glitzy nightlife area with my live link to a producer it was just epic <laughs> a bit more high end than um, the phone set up we've got right now <laughs> <laughs> whatever works <laughs> Uh, so it was, it was like kind of like you know, Brian Cox style kind of documentary. Very, so. very much. So it is the Brian Cox one, um, which they, they do for the UK market. But the rest of the world apparently isn't that keen on Brian Cox. Oh, so boo. We prefer a variety of talking heads. <laughs> well, not exactly talking heads. They, we spent a lot of time walking around quarries. It's surprisingly cold on a Welsh quarry. <laughs> Comparable to St Andrews? <laughs> Uh, at 11 o'clock at night where we're in an abandoned building <laughs> an abandoned industrial building it got very cold I even see. though I was wearing quite a, you know, a, a, a wearing the proper stuff <laughs> but yes that was that was cold but a lot of fun yeah yeah scientific communication like that does sound quite fun actually like I've been thinking of doing scientific research for a while but now like I guess we're starting this podcast and some other things like that does sound like it would be quite a fun thing to do mm -hmm. as well. Like maybe even if like it's just bits and pieces here and there, mm. and still like a whole career. Yeah. Now I, I enjoy doing um, public talks. Uh, so I was in a school a couple of months ago. Uh, for part of it was International Women's Day as well, and uh, just giving them a talk about doing science and why it's. Uh, it's not this kind of lone genius of um, 
questionable social habits, <laughs> which I think is how, how most people think about scientists. Uh, but to, if you're going to do rocket science, you need a very big team. You need a, a team uh, of people, you, uh, you need a team of engineers, you need a team of chemists, you need a team of, of computer scientists, you need, you need the scientists who are going to interpret the results. You, you don't just need some lone genius, you need, you need a team to do big projects like this. Uh, and so just trying to give them this idea that science isn't about being some genius, that you just happen to be able to do science, that, that just does not happen. I, I saw the first maybe five minutes of Good Will Hunting, uh, which is this film with um, uh, Matt Damon, who I normally, I normally really like. But the whole premise of the film is there's a janitor who just happens to be uh, a mathematical genius. You don't just happen to be a mathematical genius. There are people for whom that way of thinking comes more easily, but it's a language. And even for people who are really good at languages, you have to take the time to learn the vocabulary. Uh, you can't just... Even, even if you're amazing at languages, you can't just speak Japanese and you certainly can't read it. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. And yet people get away with writing film scripts that basically say you could just happen to be good at tense and mathematics. I'm sorry, you can't. You happen to have to practice and practice and work really hard at it. And then some people will always find it a little bit easier to think that way than others. But... No one can do it without practicing a lot. Mm. Yeah, but it's like um, Einstein like has his miracle miracle year of 1905, yes. where he like bashes out like five bangers <laughs> of a paper. Yeah. 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 But like yes. <laughs> calling it like one miracle year makes yeah. it seem like you know it's just genius. But like you must have taken so much like more like many years of like hard thought and you know effort to yeah. actually get to that point. Yeah. Like, I'm sure it doesn't just happen. <laughs> yes. yes. And so for my first years as well, it, it doesn't just happen, you have to work at it. <laughs> oh, oh, when, when I'm like, doing the like, quantum mechanics weekly problems, i got to say I do wish it would just go. <laughs> but yeah, maybe, maybe we'll get there eventually. <laughs> yep. Well, I, I think I've made you you all at least have a go at thinking what a particle in a box might do. I, I think I got you to think intuitively and physically about that. But we will see. I'll set you a, a, a tutorial. You will find out. Ooh, okay. I'm off that in my hand. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's been so nice talking to you, Chris. I think we'll wrap it up there. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. I think that was...